in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16 will be our text this Lord's Day as we continue to walk through this book of the Bible together. Uh, We'll be looking at the first 15 verses today in Acts 15. If you have been with us, you know that uh, last week as we talked about the end of Acts 15, we talked about how the Scripture informs us as to how we're to deal with disagreements as we saw a disagreement arise there between Paul and Barnabas as to whether or not John Mark was suitable to take with them on their missionary journey. And as we looked at that text, we talked about just the practical implications of that in our own life. In handling disagreements with one another and handling disagreements in our church. It's, it's something very rev, uh, relevant to us. And that's the beauty of just walking through the Scripture together. I don't have to sit at home during the week thinking, well, well, I wonder what people really need to hear about this week. Or I wonder what issue is in our culture, in our congregation that I really need to camp out on. As we walk through the Scripture, it presents to us the things we need to discuss. It sometimes takes us to things that we wouldn't otherwise look at. And sometimes I'm always amazed how the Spirit works. It, it touches on these issues that are very timely for many of us, things that we are considering and processing through. And I I think today's text might be one of those for some of us today because what we're going to talk about as we walk through the first 15 verses of Acts 16 is the question that that I'm asked uh, probably more often than any other question as a pastor. People often will ask me in one shape or form, Pastor, how do I know God's will for my life? How do I discern what God wants me to do? I've, I've got to make a decision and I'm not sure... Which one's the right one? How can I know what God would have me do? Well, I think that's something that comes to mind and comes to the surface as we look at this text today. Because up until this point, uh, Paul, in this missionary journey, had pretty much gone wherever he felt the need to go and desired to go. And there's so many places that needed the gospel. Uh, Anywhere he went was a good place to go preach the gospel. But today's the first time that the Lord stops him from going somewhere he wanted to go. And in doing that, Paul has to wrestle with this question that many of us find ourselves wrestling with. How do we know what God wants us to do? And so whether today you are dealing with that question in regards to your career, in regards to your studies as a student, in regards to relationships and other issues, whatever it is you're faced with right now and you're trying to determine, should I do this and go this direction or go this and go this direction, I hope you'll consider where you're at, and consider those questions in light of what the Scripture teaches us. Because I think it teaches us much along these lines as we look at Paul dealing with this very question. So, out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able to, if you would stand together as I read His Word for us today. This is what the holy, inspired Word of God says. Paul came also to... Derby in Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra in Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way throughout the cities, they delivered to them for observance, the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. 
And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Messiah, they attempted to go to Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Messiah, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made the direct voyage from Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, She urged us, saying, If you had judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. If you would pray with me. Father, we see in this passage that that, that no word of man will change anyone. We need a word from you. That's what changed Lydia here. That's what changed anyone who was changed in the New Testament, that that's what will change us today, a word from you. So we pray, Lord, that we would hear that word and respond to that word. In the name of Jesus and in the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask this. Amen. You may be seated. I enjoy reading... Far and wide, various news stations. I like to read headlines from all over the world. I like to read them from all over our nation. And and there are certain headlines that will kind of jump out at me at times. Uh, This one caught my attention. Perhaps it caught yours as well. Not long ago when I read this, uh, which was actually a local story out of Indiana. The headline read, Driver who asked Jesus to take the wheel hit motorcyclist. That's funny. Nobody laughed in the first service. Here's what the article said. Usually when someone says, Jesus, take the wheel, it's meant to help them through a rough patch of life. But police say an Indiana woman took that phrase literally on July 11th when she took her hands off the steering wheel as she was driving. The Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette reports that 25-year-old Prianda Hill told authorities she let go of the wheel because, quote, God told her he would take it from there, end quote. Unfortunately, for Anthony Olivery, her car veered off the road and slammed into his motorcycle, throwing him into the ground. And then the car ran over him. The accident broke all of Olivery's ribs on his left side, cut his spleen, bruised his kidney, and caused severe injuries to his left arm and leg. Hill kept on going. According to court reports, hitting a pickup truck twice and only stopping when her car crashed into an island between two fast food restaurants several blocks away from where she struck the motorcycle. Now, I don't know what was going through Miss Hill's mind. Maybe she had heard Carrie Underwood's song a few too many times and took her hands off that wheel. 
the article went on to say she had a massive amount of painkillers in her car, so I think that may have had something to do with it. But as I read this article, uh, honestly, I kind of snickered as I read it because I thought, how ironic (laughs) that someone would say, uh, I'm doing something to trust God, and in the midst of it, do something so terribly awful that caused all this destruction. And as I thought about it, I thought, you know, I, I don't know that her logic is so different from the logic of so many believers today. See, a lot of us, when we think about how we make decisions and how we discern God's will, we're probably doing that more based on country songs than we are on what God's Word says. I thank God for unanswered prayers. Uh, Jesus, take the wheel. There, there are a litany of songs that might come to our minds and might resonate with us as we think about how do we discern what we are to do and what we are not to do. And what gets often lost in that is actually considering what does God's Word say. And so, for example, as Christians, we become accustomed to things like looking for signs in order to determine God's will. And so perhaps you're trying to make a decision between uh, two job offers and, and you're reading Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. All your ways can acknowledge Him. He'll make your path straight. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. And as you're reading that, the phone rings. And on the other end of the phone is one of those jobs and they offer you the position. And as you're talking with them, you look down and the clock, wouldn't you know, says 3.56. And maybe it happens in March, the third month of the year, and maybe that's the month you turn 56, and you just know God has put all those things together so that you might discern that that's the right path to take. For others of us, we think of God's will as something that's written under a rock in the middle of a field with numerous rocks, and if we just keep seeking and looking and turning those rocks upside down, eventually we'll find the one that tells us what to do. And so we picture finding God's will a sort of like a, a supernatural seek-and-find experience. And whatever it is, oftentimes what we do as Christians to discern God's will is far from actually just spending time reading His Word to better understand His will. Now, I say that understanding that, that God's will is not always explicitly personal in His Word. And so, when I was a college student, trying to discern if I should ask this young girl I'd been dating to, to be my wife and uh, be married to me and one day move to Bloomfield, Kentucky and have four children together. I didn't have a, a sign. I was trying to figure things out. I was trying to d- discern, is, is this what I'm to do? Well, God didn't put it on a wall. He didn't give it to me in a dream. And any more than He has for any of you. But... Here's a word of advice for you, especially for those young people here who are dating and who are thinking about marriage and who are thinking these very things. How do you know who you should marry? And is this person the right person for me? God might not say in Acts chapter 16 verse 1, "Uh, Richard, you should marry Sandy. (laughs) But what he does throughout his word is he gives us a picture of what godly marriage is to look like. He tells us explicitly what relationships are to look like. He tells us very clearly 
instructions and guidelines for issues like intimacy and purity. He gives us a portrait of how marriage is to be a symbol of Christ and His church. And if we study and seek to understand those things better, then the personal questions like, who should I marry, become much easier to answer. But what often happens for us in the church is we spend very little time, even as Christians, considering what God's very clear will is for us, not really thinking through those big picture issues. And then when these personal things come up, we start to flip through God's Word like it's a magic eight ball, and suddenly this verse is going to jump off the page and tell us what to do. Well, this morning I want to challenge us to consider a different process for identifying God's Word, identifying God's will, uh, both for our lives and for our church. Because I think what we find in Acts chapter 16 is a situation where Paul is seeking to discern what is God's will for his life. What should he do? And as he goes through this process, I think there's some things that we can learn here today. And they apply to, to any question you have before you right now about discerning what God would have you do. You start by looking at the things that are very clear. And the first one is this, point one. God's will is for every Christian to be a gospel witness. God's will is for every Christian to be a gospel witness. Now, when I say Christian, I don't mean you grew up in church. I don't mean in a, in a Gallup poll you identify yourself as Christian. When I say Christian, I mean you have heard the gospel. Uh, you understand that God created in perfection Adam and Eve. That Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God and His instruction. And that that was a fall, was a sin that came between God and man. And that that meant God was just in condemning man to an eternal separation from Him and every man that's lived since then because of their sin, because of our sin. But when that happened, God made a promise to man that one day a Redeemer would come that would crush the head of the enemy. That Redeemer would be Jesus. Jesus would go to the cross, would die for our sin, would raise on the third day, would conquer sin and death. When I say Christian, I mean one who not only understands that, but has responded to it through repentance and placing their faith in Christ. But for those who are Christian, truly Christian, God's will for you and I is that we be a gospel witness, that we tell a lost and dying world about the gospel. That is what clearly was God's will for Paul and Silas and others who would go with them on this journey. Chapter 16 begins by saying that Paul is now going to, to Derby and Lystra. And as he goes there, uh, he finds this disciple named Timothy. We'll learn much about Timothy through Acts and through later letters Paul will write to Timothy. Uh, here, Luke tells us that Timothy came from a bit of a mixed marriage. Uh, his father was a Greek. His mother was a Jew. Uh, she actually was a Jew who then became a Christian. Uh, her mother, we find in other texts, also had become a Christian, probably through Paul's previous time there preaching in Lystra. And so as a result of this family that he grew up in, Timothy has learned the Jewish faith, but, but, but not fallen into all the Jewish customs, especially this one of circumcision that's been such a topic of debate among the early church. And so you may read this and find it a bit ironic that Paul then seeks to have Timothy circumcised because as we went through the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, the whole issue that got settled there was, listen, in order to be saved, people don't need to become Jewish before they become Christian. And so it can seem here a bit of a contradiction 
that, that Paul is telling Timothy, well, you need to, to do this thing that would make you then authentically Jewish. But what you find is that Paul is not telling Timothy that he's not saved. And he's in no way saying that you need to do this in order to be saved. What he's saying is that this will enable you to proclaim the gospel in a way that otherwise you won't be able to. Well, what Paul is asking Timothy to consider and what Timothy then acts on is what's going to allow him to be the greatest gospel witness. And in order for him to have a witness among these Jewish leaders at these synagogues, this will help him. And so for that reason then, he goes through this process. And in doing that, I think he helps us to discern something today. When we're faced with a decision, any decision, as Christians... We need to begin by asking ourselves the question, how will this decision affect my gospel witness? Is this going to better enable me to share the gospel with people? Is this going to hinder me from sharing the gospel? Uh, will this decision actually be contrary to what the gospel says, thus making this a very poor witness to the gospel? Uh, that's something we need to consider. And that's something I think Paul considered in this passage, even beyond this concern about Timothy and his background. Because consider where Paul is. He's gone back to Lystra. Do you remember what happened last time Paul was in Lystra? This is the city that Paul and Barnabas were in, where there was a lame man, a beggar, and they healed him. And the people of the city came out, and rather than saying this healing was done by the one true God... They were a lost pagan city who worshipped pagan Greek gods. And they began to shout out that Paul and Barnabas were actually Greek gods who had come down to walk among them. And they started calling them Zeus and Hermes. And not only that, and then when Paul tries to straighten them out and say, Oh, no, 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 you've got this all wrong. <laughs> we're servants of the one true God. That God has healed this man. Well, the crowd didn't respond very well. You remember what they did? They dragged Paul outside of the town. They picked up stones and they began to hurl them at Paul until they thought that he was dead. And then they left him there. So if you're Paul and you're about to go out on another missionary journey and you're looking at a map of all the places that you could go and you're going to base this decision on how you feel and what you want to do, Lystra is going to be the last place you're going to go to. I mean, I can see Paul considering this, thinking, okay, where are all the places I went to where I wasn't beaten to near death? Uh, where did I go where, where they actually responded to the gospel rather than calling me a false god? And when I said I wasn't that false god, they tried to kill me. And there were all kinds of places Paul went to where people responded well. And so think about this in our modern context. You go on a mission trip, and you barely get out alive. You go on five other mission trips, and hundreds respond to the gospel. Where are you going to go to next? You're probably going to go where they responded, not where they tried to kill you. But Paul doesn't do that. Why? Because I think what Paul is helping us to understand is that our decisions need to be rooted in the issue of the gospel and not in how we feel, not in what makes us the safest, not in what makes us the most comfortable. 
If the Great Commission is going to be fulfilled, if the gospel is going to go to the nations, somebody's going to die. If the gospel is going to go to the nation, somebody's going to be in danger. I'm on the low end of that. My wife and two of my kids are in Poland, safe area, went there for a mission trip. I miss them. I don't like being apart from them. I don't know what I'm doing. I know how to put clothes in the washing machine, in the dryer. They didn't come out folded. That was a whole learning process. I miss my wife. If the gospel is going to be proclaimed, somebody's going to miss their wife. Somebody's going to miss their husband. Some husband's not going to come home or some wife's not going to come home. And God's going to call some people like Paul to go back to a city where they almost lost their wives. Paul does this not because it feels good. And that's a good reminder to us that we as Christians should not make decisions based on what feels good. And so when you ask someone, why'd you do this? Well, I just had a real good feeling about this. That didn't necessarily indicate we're in the will of God. If I say that to you, what that probably indicates is I'm in the will of Richard. (laughs) Now, you might feel good about something God calls you to. Or you might be scared or worried or anxious. You might be here this morning very nervous, anxious, worried about something the Lord is leading you to. If that's the case, I think you're in good company. And I think there's a greater likelihood you're probably in the will of God than if you felt happy and everything's great and everything's comfortable. I don't think Paul was comfortable in going Lystra. And I don't think that following the will of God always means that we'll be in comfort either. But we must consider first and foremost the gospel. How will this decision affect our gospel witness? Point two, God's will is for every Christian to walk by faith. So we see clearly in the word, His will is that we share the gospel. We see also His will is that we walk by faith. Well, what does that mean? The scripture tells us we walk by faith, not by sight. And so when we walk by sight, we walk by things we can control, things that, that, that we can understand. When we walk by faith, we walk by things we can't always control and sometimes don't understand. And that's what we see here with Paul. Paul was going to go to Asia. There's lost people all over the world. There's lost people in Asia. Paul, for whatever reason, feels like the Lord is leading him to Asia. But notice what happens. The Scripture tells us, verse 6, the Holy Spirit forbids them from speaking the word in Asia. Verse 7, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. How? Luke doesn't tell us. This is one of those places I would love for Luke to say, okay, here's the exact way the Holy Spirit did this. We we don't know. We don't know if, if the Holy Spirit just kept putting roadblocks and roadblocks and roadblocks in the way. We don't know. If he did what will happen later in this passage, if somehow Paul had a vision and there was a man in Asia saying, don't come to Asia. God doesn't want you to come to Asia. Whatever it is, what we do know is that as the Lord is saying no to one thing, he is saying yes to another thing. And Paul is being kept from Asia because God wants him to come to Macedonia. And that becomes very clear we see in this text, because God reveals it to him in a vision. And so Paul, the scripture tells us, has this vision. And in this vision, there's a man in Macedonia who says, Come over here! Help us! And then, Paul wakes up from that vision. 
And he says, I think I've concluded God wants us to go to Macedonia. (laughs) Now, how many of you, when you read that, think, well, if God made his will clear to me in a vision, I could understand it too? (laughs) I think a lot of us. Maybe that's what you would desire today. God, if you would just show me through a vision, through a dream, write it on the wall, well, then it'd be really easy to understand what you want me to do. I mean, just give me a vision. It would have been much easier for me back in college, was 20 years ago, when I was trying to decide, okay, should I ask this woman to be my wife? It'd been a lot easier if I went to bed that night and had a dream and Sandy's standing at the altar in a wedding gown saying, hey, Richard, marry me. It's God's will. Come on, get with the program. Can't snap very well. That would have been easier, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be easier for you today if you're trying to figure things out, if God just gave you a vision and it's real clear, hey, just do this and don't do this. Okay, yeah, yeah, God, I can, I can get that. I can figure that out. But I want you to notice something about what, Paul, what happens to Paul here. Paul's not just kind of sitting on his hands, twiddling his thumbs, sitting in a corner, not doing anything, just waiting for God to give him some vision. Paul is walking in faith with God. Paul is seeking to serve the Lord as best he can. Paul is intent on going to Asia. And as he's doing that, God reveals his will to him in this vision. And what that means is it's kind of like the illustration I shared earlier. Paul's not out in a field turning over rocks going, okay, Lord, where's your will at? Paul is walking with the Lord. God doesn't want him to go where he's walking to. The Lord snatches him up by the back of his neck and sets him over here and says, you're going here now, Paul. And then Paul walks that way. How do you know what God's will is? You start by walking with the Lord. And so if you're here this morning and you don't spend any time reading God's word and your prayer life really doesn't go beyond now I lay me down to sleep, pray the Lord my soul to keep, or some other prayer over your meal. If you are not obeying the clear instruction of God's Word in other areas of your life, then it's a foolish task for you to stop today and go, well, God, what do you want me to do in this situation here? Because if you're not walking with Him in the first place, you're not going to walk with him where he's wanting you to go. And so we learn God's will, we understand his will by simply walking with him, not by looking under rocks, but by walking in faith with him. And sometimes that means that we, we walk in directions that we later find out they weren't his will for us. If you'd asked me six, seven years ago what God's will for my life was, I would have told you pretty clearly. Uh, God is calling me and my family uh, to go to Eastern Europe to be missionaries there, to preach the gospel in places where very few have heard it, to disciple believers, to send them out to the rest of the nations. I was having conversations with my parents where mom was saying, now you're not going to take my grandbabies with you, are you? (laughs) That's what we believe God's will to be. That's the direction we were heading. We were interviewing with the International Mission Board. We were going that direction. I was so excited. We were, we were having conversations about how, how do you get your life down to a crate? Because that's all we can take with us. So we're yard sailing. We're getting rid of stuff. And we're just we're ready to go. And I was in 
uh, Houston, Texas. I, I was down there with a group of pastors doing some church consultations, and I got a phone call from an official at the International Mission Board. He said, no, that's, that's not where you're going. I didn't make the medical clearance. Have a hereditary kidney disease. Kidney function was fine then. It's fine now, but, but it was a disqualifier. Couldn't go. I was confident that's where God was leading us. Do you know what I did? I, we just kept walking in faith. And we just kept trusting the Lord. Lord, wherever it is, you're going to take us and put us there. And wouldn't you know, Bloomfield. And I'll tell you right now, I didn't go to bed one night and see a vision of Terry Waldridge on a tractor saying, Come to Bloomfield, we need you. I saw an ad in the Western Recorder, and I sent in a resume. That, that's how I ended up here. Now, God was providential over all that. that there were all these connections, and people started talking about Bloomfield, and it's a, you, you can see God's hand all over it, but, but, but I didn't need a vision. I didn't need a supernatural sign. I didn't need to go to the mall one day and suddenly see Bloomfield written all over everything and discern, oh God, you must want me to go to Bloomfield. No, we just walked with the Lord and he picked us up and he put us where he would have us. So where will I be 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now? As best I see, preaching the gospel here in this pulpit. But at any given point, God can snatch me by the back of my neck and put me wherever he wants me. And if your, if your obedience to God is dependent on God keeping you where you want to be or putting you where you want to go or keeping you in this certain circle of comfort, if you're saying, well, God, I'll obey you as long as partial obedience is disobedience. And you and I need to be ready at any given point. God, we will go anywhere. We will do anything for your glory and not for ours. And walk in faith and trust him. You don't have to figure out everything. You don't need to know the answer to every question. But he's revealed so much to us in his will. You don't need a vision. In fact, you'll notice in Acts as we continue through this study, you don't see so many visions. These get fewer and fewer. You go through the rest of the, Old, the New Testament, very few visions. Why? Because we're getting the revealed word of God now. And today we have something greater than a vision in front of us. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, Long ago, and many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So in many ways, you think about how God spoke to people in the Old Testament. My goodness. A burning bush? <laughs> plagues? A sea parting? Through a donkey? God does all these miraculous things. And the writer of Hebrews says, listen, you remember all that stuff God did to tell our fathers what to do? But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is, friend, you and I have a greater witness today. We have a greater sign today than a vision or a dream we have the Word of God. Are you living under the authority of it? If you're not, it is a foolish task to try to ask God what His will is today. Because He has revealed it so clearly to us. It's that we be a gospel witness. It's that we walk in faith. And then point three, 
God's will is for every Christian to live in light of the Great Commission. And so as a church, as Christians, we, we need to consider the Great Commission in every decision we make. Matthew chapter 28, it's a reminder, Jesus came and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Jesus says very clearly, the buck stops here. I've got the authority to tell you anything, to make any decision, all authority on heaven and earth. Right? Hebrews reminds us, Jesus creates the world. You want to know what God's will is for you? Talk to the one who created you. Jesus says, I've got all authority. Go therefore. So because I have the authority, here's what you need to do. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so God's will for you this morning, God's will for our church, and any decision that you're facing is that His name might be glorified and that the nations might know Him. And so when you're deciding something, whether it's which house you should buy, which person you should date, which career path you should go down, all these decisions in front of you, decide them in light of God's call on us to be witnesses to the nations of the gospel. Because here's the work God is doing. Paul arrives in Macedonia. He sees this vision of a man. And so Paul probably goes about the process of doing what he does in most cities. He, he probably goes to look for the local synagogue on the Sabbath to proclaim the gospel of the Jewish men there. But the indications would be to us that here, it's such a wicked place, a godless place, that there's not even a synagogue. A town only needed ten faithful Jewish men to have a synagogue. There's no indication that there's even one here in Philippi at this point. And so Paul then goes down to the river thinking, well, there's no synagogue, so surely there'll be some men gathered by the river to pray on the Sabbath. Because that was customary. There was no synagogue. Not a man to be found. But he finds a group of faithful women. And he goes to those faithful women who the Scripture tells us were God-fearing women. That means they, they knew about the Jewish faith, they knew about God, but they didn't know about the Gospel, about Jesus. And he goes and shares with them and then we read of this one named Lydia, who we'll read more about in the future, but what you can see from today's study is she is a woman of great influence, probably of wealth. Uh, she is one who sells these purple goods. That was a, a status, a, uh, an issue of wealth. And so to have those goods meant she dealt with people of wealth. She probably had wealth herself. And so Paul goes and shares the gospel with her. She responds to the gospel. Then she takes that gospel to her household. That means servants, family members, extended family members, they all start coming to faith in Christ. And so notice what happens there. Paul goes to a place where there's no Christians. And he goes to one and he shares the gospel with them. And then they go and they share the gospel with others. And what you'll see here in Philippi is that gospel will spread further and further out. Because one person was faithful to recognize the Great Commission and to take it to a lost and dying people. Friends, the reality today is, as we sit here in this church, there are groups of women and other nations by rivers praying 
to a God they don't know. You can take a plane and you can go to places all over the world and other continents and you will find people mutilating their bodies trying to appease a God they don't know. And you will find them sacrificing at times their, even their own children to appease a God they don't know. And the seriousness of our task this morning is God has given us the message and the means to take the gospel to them so that they don't have to pray anymore or sacrifice anymore to some false God or to a God they don't know so that we can tell them about the unknown God. And we've got the only thing that's going to save them. Our morality is not going to save them. Our politics aren't going to save them. They're surrounded by darkness. And God has given every Christian the responsibility to take light into the darkness. So what is God's will for you this morning? It's that you be a part of that in any way you can. I know every one of us isn't in a position to get on a plane and go somewhere around the world, but we're all in a position to be a part of the Great Commission. You can pray fervently, you can go, you can give, you can be a part of it. And the need today is as great as it's ever been. I talked to a good friend this week who's a missionary in Africa. His backyard is the place that you've seen on the news where Boko Haram and others have gone in and have just slaughtered Christians. And as I talked to him and I asked him, what's your, what's your greatest need right now? He said, our greatest need is people who will just come and will go to villages that right now they're, they're safe, we can go into them, but they're not always going to be. And he said, I can see this window just closing where we can't go anymore. And he said, Richard, nobody in these villages has ever heard the name Jesus. And they're going into villages just like them. And they're seeing people come to faith in Christ. And churches being established. And missionaries being sent out from their churches to other villages. And they're seeing women by the river converted and households converted. And all this work taking place. But what they need is more people to give and more people to pray and more people to go. And it's a great reminder to me that this window is closing. A quote I have in my office and I read often is this, C.H. Henry. The gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. And so as you consider today every detail of your life, and decisions before you, consider them in light of the Great Commission. Because if you are a Christian this morning, that Great Commission is your commission. And it's my commission. And we've been called to be a part of it. And the question is, how will we respond to that call? I'll close with this. Most of you are familiar, I would assume, with the story of the Titanic. April 5th, nineteen. April 15th, 1912. Ice gouges the underside of that massive ship that no one thought could sink and it starts to go under those icy waters. Over 1,500 men, women, and children would die aboard the Titanic and in the icy waters around it. A ship's name you might not be as familiar with is the Californian. Californian we later found, was only about 10 to 15 miles away from the Titanic when it sunk. 
not only that, it was a massive ship itself, but at that time carried a very small crew and no passengers, so it had the capacity for so many people to get on it. What happened was the Californian was in those waters before the Titanic and noticing the ice and the waters and the danger there, that they decided to stop their ship for the night and to wait until the next morning to travel when they could see and discern the ice and the danger. And so before they stopped the ship, they sent out a distress signal, a call to other ships in the area and said, listen, there's, there's ice in the waters and you better be mindful of this and careful of this. And the Titanic was one that received that warning. But all they did was send out a warning and then the radio operator turned off his radio and he went to bed. So it wasn't there hours later to hear the distress call that came out for the Titanic once it had struck ice. But there was another way they communicated their distress. Aboard there, they had a series of flares, and so they started to shoot these flares and rockets into the sky. And just being a few miles away, the staff on board the Californian were able to see those flares and to recognize them They were a little confused by them because they didn't go up in the proper increments for a distress signal, but they indicated distress nonetheless. But for reasons that are still confounding today, Captain Stanley Lord, the Lord or the, the captain of the Californian, was informed about the distress signals and chose to ignore them. And he too went to bed. Next morning, the radio operator got up, turned on the radio, and then became aware of the distress call from the Titanic. But by that point, it was too late. They turned their ship, they started towards the Titanic, but when they got there, all they found was wreckage and frozen corpses. There was an investigation that followed. One historian in reading about that investigation wrote this. The crime of Captain Stanley Lord, the captain of the Californian, was not that he may have ignored the Titanic's rockets, but that he unquestionably ignored someone's cry for help. The gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. We have seen the flares. The call is there. The question is, how will we as a church, how will you as a Christian respond to it? you would pray with me. Father God, I pray you would help us to answer that question with a a resounding affirmation that we will go wherever you call us to go. We will do whatever you call us to do. We will give whatever you call us to give. We will sacrifice whatever you call us to sacrifice for the cause of the Great Commission. And so Lord, I pray for Bloomfield Baptist Church. I pray we would be a church that would not only celebrate a rich history and missions giving and going but Lord that you would use us in an even greater way in the days to come and the months to come and the years to come for your glory that there's a window that's shutting around the world Lord there are windows being shut in our own nation and so Lord would you help us while we have this voice and this opportunity to loudly boldly graciously proclaim the gospel because it's the only thing that will save anyone And Lord, what's at danger here is is a lot more than 1,500 people going down the Titanic. It's millions in our nation. It's billions in our world. So Lord, would you burden us today with the need to be a part of your global mission. And Lord, then help us to make every decision in light of that. 
And Lord, for any here who doesn't understand what we're talking about, this kind of seems to me foolish to them. They don't, they don't understand what the big deal is. Lord, would you, through the power of your Spirit, awaken their heart to the gospel, remove the blinders from their eyes, help them to see the wickedness of their own heart, the lostness of their soul, and the need to repent and respond to the gospel. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, if you would stand together as we...